The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Would you remain standing with me this morning as we read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayer and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the eternal source of salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. For we come and appear before that God. Our tears have been our food day and night. They call out to us all day long, where is your God? But these things we remember as we pour out our soul, how we went with the throng, leading them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise his name, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves, they have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say, my God and my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries, they taunt me. They say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise his name, my salvation and my God. We come before you today, our salvation and our God. We ask you to open our eyes, to open our ears, to soften our hearts. Help us to hear and receive and believe and act in accordance with your word. For it's in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. So as we open the word this morning in anticipation of coming together yet again to this table, I've got two very distinct hopes for us. First and most critically, as God gives us this intimate look into all that Jesus Christ endured for the sake of our salvation. As we watch the hours leading up to his arrest, as we recognize the weight that the cross, just the promise of the cross brought to bear on Jesus Christ, 
I pray that we would sit today in absolute awe and wonder at the one who endured. I believe that if we can do this, I believe if we can get past the fleshly and elementary understanding, those teachings which seek to take the cross of Christ and turn it into nothing more than an instrument of physical torture, I'm confident that our affections, that our love and adoration of Jesus Christ will grow. As we gaze into the glorious face of our Savior, as we see it twisted in turmoil and anguish in those moments, that it will prevent us from ever approaching this table with anything less than faith-filled, repentant hope. That we will come to truly hate our sin. That we will come to truly adore our Savior. Secondly, as we give our lives to following after him, to daily taking up our cross and dying to ourselves. I pray that we may learn to approach our own suffering with the same steadfast commitment to the glory of God. Pray that in seeing the glory of God seen in the face of his son in the way that he endured this dark, dark night, that we too might be built up for when our day comes. That we will glorify him and magnify his name no matter the cost. Dear friends, I said to you last week, I say to you again this morning, I plead with you to preach this truth to yourself. That if you will keep your eyes and your hearts fixed on Jesus Christ, the son of the most high God, continuing enduring, pressing on, trusting in everything that he is and all that he has done, you can learn to suffer well. You can learn to find hope and enduring joy in the midst of unimaginable pain. You can come to a point where losing all the things that you once counted as precious in this life will be seen as nothing compared to the joy and the majesty, and the weight of receiving more, of growing in your communion with him. Do you understand? For those that come in true, repentant faith, for those who come in childlike faith with a dependence upon him and all that he is, God will use these ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the word, corporate worship, your time in prayer, your private study, And yes, the communion at this table, he will use these ordinary means to cause you to endure, to fortify your faith that it will not fail when your own dark and anguish-filled night comes. And dear friends, it will come. These moments may seem like nothing. I told you last week, I don't know what you're gonna feel as you come to this table. I can't tell you what to feel. Emotions aren't the matter. The issue is, do you trust that Jesus Christ will meet you here? And do you trust that here, as you reach out your hand by faith, as you take his body and his blood and spirit into yourself, do you trust that you will be strengthened, that your faith may endure when that dark night comes? So with that, I ask you to return to your feet, please. Reverence the reading of God's word. We continue our verse-by-verse study of Mark's gospel. We're still in the 14th chapter the 32nd verse. This is the word of God. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell down on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him and he said Abba Father all things are possible for you 
remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed and sang the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy. And he did not, they did not know how to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, do not allow us to pull away. We're asking you by the power of your spirit to keep us engaged. Keep us locked in. Keep our hearts and our minds and our souls focused on this word in this moment. Help us to receive it and understand it. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So as you'll likely recall, this is late Thursday night, not far from Friday morning on Holy Week. Jesus and his disciples have just concluded the last true observance of Passover. It's at that moment when he's instituted this ordinance that we call the Lord's Supper. And Jesus has now led these disciples out the eastern gates of Jerusalem. Now at this point, it's down to a group of 12, just Jesus and the 11, because Judas has already scurried away. He's already gone to the Sanhedrin. He knows where Jesus is going to be headed. And so he's scurried away to meet up with these leaders that he might take them to where Jesus is and assist them in arresting him away from the eyes of the, the massive daytime crowds. So Jesus and the 11, they leave the city out to the eastern side and then they cross the ravine of the Kidron Valley. We read in verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. Now we read in the 18th chapter of John's gospel that this place is actually a garden, the garden of Gethsemane. Now because of the way that the city of Jerusalem was laid out, people couldn't just have gardens immediately adjacent to their homes. And so many of them, they would secure a spot for themselves somewhere at the base or even higher up on the Mount of Olives. It would be there that they could grow and cultivate whatever produce they desired. Now Gethsemane is a Greek derivative of a Hebrew word that means oil press. So it would not have been any surprise there on the Mount of Olives to find a garden like this, a garden filled with olive trees. There the fruit could have been harvested and then it would have been pressed into some kind of a mash, a pulp of sorts. And then yet again, it would have been pressed and strained and the oil would have been collected. Now perhaps the man that owned this garden, perhaps he just like the man that gave Jesus and his disciples the colt of the donkey. Perhaps just like the man who had the upper room where the disciples observed the Passover. It seems to me that perhaps this man and all the others, they were followers of Christ. But whatever the case, we do know that this was a place where Jesus frequently came. It would have been a nice, quiet place for Jesus to come and be alone with God. What a nice place for him to gather together with his disciples, a place of prayer, a place of solace. And we know, in fact, that this was what happened because we read in John chapter 18, verse 2, that Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus met there with his disciples. So Jesus, he says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And, they took, and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. This is a fairly common pattern for Jesus, isn't it? Now the full cadre of the apostles, they were almost always with him. They went everywhere he went. They ate everything he ate. They heard his teaching. They saw his works. They participated in these works. And yet there were special occasions. There were these 
these critical moments in Jesus' earthly ministry when he would cull down even the 12. He would reduce it to just this inner circle. Just these three would be able to continue on with him. We saw this back in the fifth chapter of Mark's gospel. You remember there was a man that was a leader of the synagogue, a man called Jairus. He received word that his daughter had died before he could get Jesus back to his home. And yet, as Jesus returned to that place, he wouldn't allow anyone to go into the home with him. Only Peter and the sons of Zebedee. Only they plus the girl's parents were allowed to go in. You remember it's there that Jesus reached out his hand. He took the dead girl's hand and he says, Talitha, kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately this once dead 12-year-old little girl got up and began walking around. You very likely remember the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel, how Jesus and his disciples, they were in the uttermost portions, the northernmost portions of the region of Galilee, and how he took with him Peter and James and John. Again, this inner, inner circle, he took these three with him up upon that high mountain. You'll know that it's there where Jesus pulled back the veil to his flesh. He revealed to these men the glory that had always been his. They stood in awestruck silence. Now, because of all this, we aren't told explicitly why, why Jesus did this? Why Jesus told, chose these three, he set them apart, gave them such special privilege and honor in receiving these sights, seeing these wondrous things. But it seems to me that what Jesus was doing was preparing these men for the positions that they would hold, preparing these men for the task that was going to lay before them as the foundation, the leaders of the early church. We read in Acts 12 that the apostle John, or excuse me, James, was going to be the very first to lose his life for the name of Christ. We know that the apostle John would be the very last of the apostles to die. We know, of course, about Peter, that he was not only a leader, one of the founding members of the early church, but in addition to that, he was used to deliver this first great sermon in the history of the church. So it seems to me that Jesus was preparing these men. He was preparing these men for tasks that they could not otherwise accomplish. He was preparing these men for positions that they were not otherwise qualified to fill. We'd seen their weakness so many times. We'd seen their frailty. We'd seen their faithlessness. We'd seen their pride. We'd seen their lack of humility, their hardened hearts, their inability to understand. And so what they needed was exactly this. What they needed was exactly what we need. I pray you're not tired of hearing this answer. Dear friends, what they needed, what we need more than anything else is to see the glory of God in Christ. More than anything else in all the universe, to prepare these men for what lay ahead, to make sure that they pressed on, to make sure that they endure, to make sure that their faith does not fail. What they need, what we need, the ultimate gift that Jesus Christ can offer us is the glory of God in his radiant face. I pray that as we sang these songs this morning, that's what you longed for. Not the tickling of your ears, not the thumping of drums in your chest. I pray as we come to this word this morning, you're not looking to be entertained and amused. You're looking for the glorious face of Jesus Christ, your Lord. I pray as you come to this table, you're not thinking just about pieces of bread in your hand and sweet juice on your lips. You're seeing the face of the one that laid down his life that you might be saved. What you need, what the world needs more than anything else is to see the glory of God in Christ. And Jesus revealed this to these men. And now having seen such power and such majesty, what they needed in these moments, what these three men who had seen so much, what they needed in these moments was to be there to witness this Jesus' greatest hour of testing. The other eight apostles, they were told to sit and wait. It seems to me that perhaps this was at the gate, the entrance to the garden. Only Jesus and the three, they would go deeper in.
Mark tells us that at this point, Jesus became greatly distressed and troubled. This Greek word for greatly distressed, it means very excited or alarmed. The root word means to be amazed or astounded. I almost wonder if this emotion that swelled up within Jesus at this moment, if it didn't catch him off guard, didn't just overcome him, the distress and the anguish and the alarm and the concern, dare I even say anxiety that came over him in these moments. There's this other word here. It says that he was troubled. The Greek, I think, is so much stronger in this sense. I don't think English can get us there. I don't think any human words can truly get us to what Jesus was experiencing in this moment. I imagine if people had been watching on, not knowing what Jesus Christ endured, not knowing what the words tell us today, I think they would have found him to be a madman. He would have looked like a ravenous animal, I have to believe, as he throws himself on the ground in such tremendous mental and emotional anguish, tormented by the thought of what lay ahead for him. And he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. This is no ordinary sadness. This is no everyday depression. Jesus makes that clear. Jesus doesn't stretch language beyond its necessary means. Jesus isn't exaggerating here. He is so overcome by the weight of what lies ahead. He is in such great distress to the degree of almost astonishment. It's a wave upon wave of emotions that hit him on this night. The cross is off in the distance. The shadow of that cross is falling upon him. And yet, just the promise of the cross, just the knowledge of what lays ahead as these waves come upon him, he so dreads that experience that he's to the point of death. So grieved. You've had experiences like this, haven't you? Not to this degree. But when the news comes, when that phone call happens, and you think, I will die. I don't know how I overcome this. I don't know how I get up off the ground. I don't know how I take one more step. I just must lay here because I don't think I can move. And you must understand that Jesus was not a stranger to sorrow. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was a man of sorrows. And yet we know that there's been no man that ever lived that experienced greater joy than Jesus Christ. Do you know how I know this? Because he was an absolute perfect communion with God. Because he never did anything apart from that which God called him to do. Perfectly and ultimately fulfilling every last commandment. The ultimate will of God. There can be no greater sense of peace and joy than this. There is no doubting that Jesus was the happiest man that ever lived. I'm not talking about the stupid, empty, childish silliness that passes for joy in this age. I'm talking about the deep, lasting, abided blessedness that comes from one that walks with God. I'm talking about the kind of joy, the kind of happiness that Jesus Christ calls us to in the Beatitudes. The kind of joy and blessedness and happiness that is not bound up in experiences. It is not bound up in circumstances. It is not bound up in emotions. And yet all throughout the gospel, we read that Jesus knew tremendous sorrow. He lived in heartbroken frustration over the lack of understanding, lack of depth of fortitude and, and the weakness of the faith of these men that followed after him. We know about the great burden he had for the people of Israel, knowing that they had been left as sheep without a shepherd. We know about his compassion for men, women, and children, these people that were in such desperate need of physical and spiritual healing. Don't you see? Jesus Christ, he didn't merely carry the weight of his own grief. He seized the hearts of men. 
He knows their stories. He loves them more deeply than they could ever imagine, and he feels their pain. He weeps with those who weep. He mourns with those who mourn, and at times, at times he carries the burden. He feels the hurts and the pain of men, women, and children, even as they themselves do not know that they should have a care in the world. Think about Jerusalem. We read in Luke's gospel, verse 9, chapter 19, that Jesus stood over the edge of Jerusalem, looked upon this great city, and he wept. These people didn't know they had any concern at all. These people thought that all was well. The majesty of the great buildings, stones weighing more than a million pounds, walls covered in gold, the temple in which the most fullest sense of God's presence was said to dwell upon the earth. This was the very pinnacle of, religious, of religion in all the world. This was a city of peace. These people sincerely believed that they were the most blessed and the closest people to Yahweh in all the earth. But the Son of Man stood alone as he looked over them and sobbed. He sobbed for them. He knew that before this generation was over, not one stone would be left standing upon another. And yet, more than that, he knew that the vast majority of these people, they would die in their sin, having utterly rejected their only hope of salvation. They prepared a feast of celebration when they should have been fasting. They should have been sitting in sackcloth and mourning, weeping, crying out to the living God, begging him that he would forgive them. They should have been sitting in repentance and prayer and fasting, praying that God might somehow be merciful to them. And yet they sat there believing that surely the Messiah had come to bring them all earthly riches, to make sure that they never suffered, that there was no pain. They had not a care in the world. It was only Jesus who understood what awaited them. And so he cried alone. Dear friends, I have to wonder how many of you sit in this place today without a care in the world. While even at this moment, Jesus looks over you and he weeps because he knows what awaits you in eternity. Because you believe that religious exercise has bought you something. Because you've chosen to grade on a curve. Because you do not realize the horrors of hell and you have never come to the point where you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your only hope and your ultimate treasure. I wonder today how many of you sit here and you sing songs of joy. You leave this place skipping and whistling Dixie thinking there's not a concern for you on the other side of eternity and dear friends, Jesus Christ weeps. He says, oh, that I would have gathered you in, but you would not come. Your gospel, my gospel has been preached to you. The offer has been extended, and you sat there like dead men. But even in all of this, even in all that weeping, even in all that sorrow, even in all that pain and distress, we don't see language like this until this moment. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. There was something about this night there was something that Jesus Christ knew. There, there, there was just a deep and unyielding darkness which came over Jesus at this moment that brought him to the very point of death. Now the good Dr. Luke, he tells us that Jesus was in such agony that the sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Hematohydrosis is the technical term for this. When a man's under a, a, an, just an immense amount of stress, just great turmoil in an instant, their blood vessels can contract to such a severe degree that they can burst, they can give way, that the blood then can be released and it can be sweated out. Literally, it can be said that Jesus was sweating drops of blood. This is rare. I doubt many of you have ever seen it. And yes, there are cases. Such extreme stress, it comes over a man like this that his sweat becomes like blood. The sorrow of this moment, the darkness of this night, it has truly engulfed the whole of Jesus Christ. His mind was racing. He had to be constantly fighting at every moment to draw it back to the matter at hand. 
You know that feeling? When something is so heavy and so weighty and so immense in front of you, you just want to think about anything else. Is this not why men drink? Is this not why they chase after the lust of the flesh? Just to shut this thing off because I can't engage with this one more second. I can't stay here in these moments. And his emotions, they were all over the map. He knew that he trusted in God, and yet this full range of human emotions that hit him in this moment. In addition to this, even his body, even his body trembled and quaked. He had no control even over his outer body as he sweat blood in this moment. Truly, we have never experienced something like this. There's not a one of us here in this room that has not experienced stress. There's not a one of us here in this room that haven't received that phone call. There's not a one of us here in this room that has not felt there's a moment we could not go on, and yet there was something truly unique about this moment. So Jesus Christ says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus wanted these three men near him at this hour. Yes, of course, so that they could witness his anguish. Yes, of course, so they could hear his prayer. But also this was his last opportunity for companionship. He had already said that they would all run away. He knew that Peter would deny him. He knew that the others would flee as soon as the shepherd was struck. But this was his last opportunity. In these last few hours before these men ran, ran away, before they abandoned Jesus, he sought the comfort and intimacy of a friend. There's comfort in friends just being near you, just knowing that there's someone right there, even if they can't walk fully through the darkness with you, even if this is only your burden to bear, just having someone there, having someone close, having someone sitting and watching, Jesus sought this comfort in these last few moments of devotion. So he says to them, stay here and watch in Matthew's account, we read that he says, remain here and watch with me. Now in Exodus 12, with the, the night of the Passover, what we're told is that on that night when God saved his people from slavery in Egypt, he said that it was to be a night of watching. And now here on this night, the night before ultimate freedom would be purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, he calls his closest friends to sit there and watch. This had nothing to do with Judas or the Roman soldiers. Jesus knew they were coming. He had promised that they were coming. He was calling Peter and James and John to keep spiritual watch. Much like what we read back in the Olivet Discourse when he told us to be on guard, stay awake, be alert, watch your soul. Jesus was telling these men not to let their guard down. You see even now how he has great care for them, great concern for them. He's watching out for these men because he knows what this hour brings. Not only he, but Satan knows what's at stake. Satan knows the reason why Jesus has come. Pointing all the way back to Genesis 3, he knows that the son of woman is coming to crush the head of the serpent. He knows that the son of God comes to destroy the works of the devil and the enemy will not go down without a fight. And so he's warning these men, stay ready, stay alert, guard and watch your soul. Sit here and keep watching. Verse 35, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed. So Jesus pulls away a bit further. His friends can remain close, but he had to be alone with the Father in these moments. We see a picture here, the consecration of the great high priest, the setting aside of the sacrificial lamb. He had to be alone with the Father. He had to face this moment alone, and he had to face it while laying on the ground. This was not the ordinary Jewish posture of prayer. Jewish men stood tall with their hands out like this, expecting a blessing from God. Yet in this moment, Jesus Christ fell on his face, a show of absolute desperation, desperate need for the help of God. A show of utter dependence upon him, submission. I've seen men and women assume this posture of prayer before. Not as a show. Not as an exaggeration. Not as a token. 
They just couldn't get any lower. If it had been possible, they would have sunk into the depths of the earth. If it was any possible, they would have sunk into the core of the earth. They wanted to be as low as possible because so high was God in that moment. They knew so how high God was. They knew how majestic and powerful and mighty and holy was their God. They needed to be as low as possible as they approached him. Face on the ground, crying through breathless sobs, God, help me. God, save me. God, spare me. God, show up in this moment or I will die. So going a little further, he falls on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. This was the issue. This was the source of trouble. Was Jesus troubled by the coming betrayal or by the betrayal of Judas? Absolutely. Was he distraught over the coming denial of Peter? You bet. Was he dejected over the impending abandonment by his friends? Of course. In his humanity, Jesus was truly heartbroken over this moment, filled with grief over the tremendous acts of faithlessness as he was abandoned, left in loneliness, completely desolate, just as they all ran away. And yet, add to that the reality that in just a moment of matters, he was going to, a matter of moments, he was going to die an excruciating death. That the only man that's ever lived over whom death has no claim, the wages of sin are death. This man had no sin death had no claim it had no right to demand him and yet in a matter of moments he was going to be laying down his life freely giving his life and giving himself over to the death that he did not deserve so of course the pains of death they were on the horizon too but church we've seen the martyrdom of saints over the years we look just in the book of acts Acts 7 we see stephen as he goes to his death with great courage and composure you think about the other apostles all perhaps except for john dying in equally torturous fashion And there's no account of any of them trembling like this. There's no account of this mental and emotional anguish. Look back to the history of the church. How many saints of old have gone as martyrs with great courage, with great composure, singing songs of joy as they went to the stake to be burned, encouraging those around them that they must too be this bold? Were they stronger than Jesus Christ? We read the prayers of them from the night before. As Jesus sat on this night with his face to the ground sobbing, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What we find in the prayers of these men on the night before they went to the cross is that they counted joy. They counted an honor and a privilege to lay down their life. No hesitation, no pleas for their life. So did these men succeed where Jesus failed? Were they bold where Jesus was timid? Of course not. So why then is Jesus praying that this hour might pass? This hour that Jesus has been saying all throughout the Gospels was coming down the line. Every other time we hear him talking to his apostles about his impending death, we don't see this sense of trembling. We don't see this sense of dread. But the issue here was about a whole lot more than his physical life. The issue was the matter of the cup. That's why he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What's Jesus talking about? What is the cup? Well, God says to the prophet Habakkuk, the cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. He speaks through Ezekiel of a cup of horror and desolation. In Isaiah, we read about the cup which will leave people staggering. Isn't this all that we see from Jesus here? Desolation and staggering and anguish and pain. But we read it most clearly, I think, through The Apostle John in the book of Revelation, Revelation 14.10 says this, speaking of those who worship the beast and receive his mark, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. 
poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is the cup. It is the cup of God's wrath, his fury, his anger, his hatred for those who are found in sin. Not merely his anger, not merely his hatred, but his righteous and just punishment, eternal shame and horror and desolation, unquenchable fire. If you've been gathering with us on Wednesday nights, you know that we've spent a large portion of the last four or five weeks talking about the wrath of God. You know that when you're dealing with the infinitely holy, the supremely just, the unendingly righteous God of the universe, the one who has truly given man every last thing that we have, he has no possible response to sin other than this he has revealed himself in the stars above in the eyes of little babies even in our own consciousness and yet as men turn their back as they refuse to honor and glorify him his God there is no other possible response of this infinitely holy God of this just judge of the universe other than this he must abhor sin he must abhor sinners and he must punish them for all that they have done for every sinful thought and word and deed that they have had. And yet for centuries we have watched as God has passed over the sins of men. For those who came in repentant faith, for those who trusted in his promises, for those who turned from their sins, for those who came under the cover of the blood of bulls and goats and doves, he would pass over their sin. And yet we know that something more was needed. Something, someone more worthy than dumb animals must come to satisfy the wrath of God. Not only to wipe away the sins of men, but to fully satisfy, to appease the righteous and just wrath of God. Church, do not leave here. Do not walk out into this world for one second believing that the wrath of God can go unappeased. Someone has to drink the cup. Had God done nothing? Every single person that ever lived will spend an eternity in the utter darkness of hell drinking from this cup. Never able to fully consume it. Never able to finish. Never able to mollify and satisfy the wrath of God. Unending shame and desolation and darkness and pain. No way of escape. No form of mercy. Nothing but eternal punishment. And yet now laying on his face in this garden is God's own son. Having come to take upon himself the fullness of humanity. Everything that means to be a man fully satisfying all the righteous and just decree of God, having fulfilled all righteousness, having done nothing but that which the Father wills, and knowing that the only way for anyone to be saved was for him to give his life on the cross, was for him to take that cup. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that while his body hung on the cross, his soul would receive the just wrath of God. His soul would receive the darkness and the punishment and the pain and the horrors of hell. Infinite punishment that is due to the body and souls of the saints throughout all generations. Do you understand what this means? To drink down every last drop, the unmitigated, concentrated horrors of hell in a moment, in a matter of hours, to consume that, to be engulfed by that. Dear friends, we have no idea. We have no concept of the weight of this. The fullness of God's wrath for sinful men and women all throughout generations poured out in an instant upon his son. Now, for three hours, Jesus' body would be tortured upon that cross. For three hours, he would receive physical pain, but then suddenly, supernatural darkness would come over all the land. This was a clear sign and picture of God's judgment, not his judgment upon Egypt, 
not his judgment upon the Romans, not even his judgment upon the people of Israel, but his punishment upon his son. It's at that moment that his son would break the silence with heart-piercing, heaven-piercing cry from the son of God as he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You must understand that the God of the universe never ceased to be a Trinitarian God. The communion between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was not broken. Jesus did not cease to be God. The Father did not cease to love his Son. The Holy Spirit did not depart. But in that moment, as he consumes this cup, as he is overwhelmed by the undiluted wrath of God, there will be no comfort offered. As God pours out the wrath do just just wrath do sinners like you and like me upon his son without letting up, without extending one ounce of mercy in that moment, he would send no angel to comfort him. He would send no angel to strengthen him. There would be no voice from heaven crying, this is my beloved son. He would die completely uncomforted, abandoned not just by the men of this earth, but truly forsaken as he hung on that cross truly dying alone as he hung there bearing the full weight of hell, God's infinite wrath. This is the cup. And Jesus begged the Father, remove it from me. Are you surprised by this? Are you surprised that the Son of God could look to the Father and say, I don't want to do this. I know this is your plan. I know this is your will. I know this is the only way that these men and women may be saved, but I don't want to do it. Dear friends, don't you see there can be no other response than this? For the one that never knew anything other than to see the glorious face of his father. For the one who never knew anything but the comforting love, the blessed presence of his father. To become the very thing that he hated. To become a a curse for us. To drink down the punishment, the consequences for all the evil that we have committed. There could be no other right response than to say, I don't want this. To look at the cup that his father extended to him and say, I don't want this. No man of God could want this. No lover of God could truly embrace a thing like this. So he looks into the cup and he says, Father, I don't want to do this. I don't want to drink this cup. If there's some other way, if there's any other way, I'll do that, please. Do you see the horrors of your sin, dear friends? Do you see the weight of your sin? I'm convinced that if more men did, they would find themselves on their face today. It would be they that tremble. It would be they that cry out, God, have mercy. I don't want that cup. I sure don't want it for eternity. Someone else would consume it for me. I take that. Dear friends, what we're witnessing here in this this garden, there's a phrase. Those of you that watch sports, there's a phrase that sportscasters will often use. You'll come to a specific moment or a play within a game, and the broadcaster will say something like, this is the whole ball game right here. Now, the game may be four quarters or nine innings or two halves or whatever it is, and there may still be more time left on the clock. But what, what the guy means is what happens right here in this one play, this is the most critical moment. Everything hinges on this right here. Dear friends, what we're witnessing right here in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is the whole ball game. Now, it's at the cross of Jesus Christ where sins were paid for. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ where we see the propitiation of God's wrath. The cross means everything. 
And it's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ where we receive assurance that he is who he says he is, that he's done what he says he would do. But this right here, everything hinges on this moment. As I read these words this week, I felt like we were seeing something we shouldn't see. I felt like God was revealing something to us that no human eyes should be able to witness. You're watching Jesus Christ battle for your soul. Satan is going to do everything that he can do to keep Jesus off the cross. He's been doing that from the very beginning. He knows that at the cross, he is undone. And so you must believe that in this moment, he has rallied every demon that he can gather. And they have come to this place to sneer and accuse and mock and tempt Jesus Christ to abandon the plan. To give up on the cross. To pull away, to let up, to wander away, to seek after the will of his flesh. In this moment, knowing that if he gives in, that if he fails, if he gives up, no one will be saved. Do you understand what's at stake here? Do you understand the weight of what's happening here? And so Jesus cries out in this moment, Father, there is nothing that you cannot do. Please remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus' sole purpose is for the glorification of the Father for ushering in the kingdom, for doing only that which his Father wills. Now, we do not have time to fully unpack all of this, but you'll note that Jesus talks here as if his will is something separate from the Father's will. Now, as the eternal Son of God, the will of Jesus is, the will of the Son is always the will of the Father. And yet, as the Son of Man, Jesus has a fully human soul, fully human mind and will and emotions. A mind which can grow and can learn and expand, understanding things. Emotions, which we see on full display right here, the full range of human emotions all throughout this life, and a fully human will. A human will which must be brought into line with the will of the Father. And we see that picture more clearly here than perhaps anywhere else. As he says to his Father, I don't want to drink this cup. And yet more than not wanting to drink this cup, more than not wanting to feel the unparalleled horrors of taking this cup upon myself, I don't want to dishonor and disobey you. So your will, not my will, be done. Verse 37, and he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Now it's late, and the men have eaten a large meal. In fact, we read in Luke's gospel that they were overcome with the anguish and the sorrow of the night, and so they've fallen asleep. Even before abandoning Jesus Christ, even before even for betraying and running away from him in that moment, they've failed to stay awake. The shepherd hasn't even yet been struck, and these men have failed. Dear friends, I wonder how many men, they continue to sit in the physical presence. They sit in a place like this. They sit amongst the saints. They don't turn and run away physically, and yet they've already abandoned him. They've already failed to stay awake to stay on guard, to watch their souls. Verse 38, so he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now Jesus had been praying for the souls of these men all throughout this night. We read in John 17 that he was praying to the Father that he would keep them, make sure that they did not fall away. We know specifically that he has prayed for the soul of Peter, that Peter's faith would not fail. And now he's urging them, pray that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing. You fully believe that you won't abandon me. You fully believe that you're going to carry on and continue with me until the very end. You're committed. You're committed in your spirit that you will endure, but your flesh is weak. Your flesh is scared. Your flesh is weary. He isn't talking about the physical inability to stay awake. Although, dear friends, I will tell you that being a man of God, being a man of prayer, devoting yourself to truly following hard after Jesus Christ, it will take a physical toll. It will press you to the ends of your physical limits, but that's not what he's talking about here. 
He's talking about their inability to remain faithful to him until the end, to move forward in obedience to God, to continue to stay spiritually awake, spiritually on guard, guarding their soul against the enemy that roams around in that place seeking to devour one of them. Dear friends, the Christian life, this life of watching and praying, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, it is truly exhausting work. This fight for the faith, it is so difficult because our souls are constantly pulling back to this other direction. We, we know that our souls, we know that our flesh is pulling us to the left, and it's a, it's a constant battle. There's never a day when we wake up and go, I'm just going to put it in cruise control, and I'm just going to keep headed straight to the gates of heaven. That's not the way this thing works, is it? There's, there's constantly this pull of the flesh away from the things of God, away from the will of God, away from the, the, the hard path that he lays before us. And so it's a constant fighting. It's a constant watching. It's constant staying awake on guard at all moments. Absolute battle between the spirit and the flesh. So we must always be watching and praying, praying like Jesus, understanding what the true battle is, that it's not just with physical enemies. It's not just a battle of the flesh, that it's eternal things, that it's spiritual things. Being on guard against the enemy of your soul and relying fully on the, the power of Jesus Christ. How many men have shipwrecked their faith because they believe that they had it under control in their faith? They believe it was time to take the training wheels off and they could take off on their own. They no longer needed these ordinary things. How many men do I hear that say, look, I don't have to be a Christian to come to church? No, strike that, reverse it. You don't have to be a Christian to come to church. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I don't have to gather for, for, in corporate worship to follow after Jesus Christ. Do you understand what you're saying in those moments? You're saying to God, I've got it from here. I don't need to be fed from your word. I don't need the encouragement of the body. I don't need the bread and the juice. I don't need these common graces that you've promised. These things that you've said, only by these may you endure to the end. Don't you know how strong I am in my flesh, God? Don't you know all that I've accomplished? Take the training wheels off and let me go. And then they drive straight into the ditch and they wonder, well, what's happened? What's happened? We must come like this, utter dependence upon him, knowing that our flesh is weak no matter how willing our spirit may be. Verse 39, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And we're not told how long Jesus was praying. It seems perhaps based on his response to Peter that maybe this was an hour. We, we don't know for sure, but whatever the length, these men cannot hold it together. They cannot stay awake. They failed to continue to pray, even for their own souls, even for the sake of the temptation which looms about but perhaps we see some maturity here in their lack of response. We see that even Peter doesn't offer an excuse. Even Peter doesn't swear his ability from this point forward. You see, you, you know when a man has come to truly and rightly see his sin, you know when a man has come to truly and rightly understand the cross of Jesus Christ, when he puts his hand over his mouth and he has not a word to say. I've got no excuse. I've got no answer. I've got no explanation. I've got nothing to say in this moment. Verse 41 and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So we see this change in Jesus' expression here. No mention of the sorrow or the anguish. No longer is he asking the Father to remove this cup. Just outright determination. He tells these men that will be abandoning him in a, minute, a matter of minutes. He says, rise, let us be going. He sees the torches of the betrayer as they come near to the guard. He says, rise, let us go out and meet them. Stand to your feet and let's go like men. Let's meet the betrayer as he leads these to us. Now, Matthew, perhaps, I think gives us some, gives us some insight. Because what he says here is that the second time that Jesus leaves the men, when they have failed, when they've fallen asleep and they're praying, that he says in his prayer to the Father, Father, if this cup cannot, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, 
your will be done. Jesus seems to be saying here, Father, strengthen me. If there's no other way, if there's no other way for this hour to pass other than me consuming the cup, then make sure your will is done. Make sure I get to the cross. Do not allow me to turn away. Do not allow me to fail. Do not allow me to grow weak. Do not allow me to succumb to temptation. Father, if this cup is your will, then you make sure that I get there. You make sure that I climb upon that cross and that I, for the, for the joy set before me, that I jump upon that cross and I lay down my life, that you might be glorified in the love that you extend to sinners. Luke tells us that during the same time, God sends an angel. Father sends an angel to be with Jesus Christ to strengthen him. And I believe the words that David read earlier give us some insight into perhaps what that angel said to him in those moments. We read from Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death and he was heard because of his reverence. The father sends an angel to send a message of strength to Jesus Christ. He says, son, there is no other way. There is one way of salvation, and that is for you to drink this cup. You must drink the cup of my wrath. I cannot let up. I cannot stop short. I will empty it all upon you. Son, it is my will to crush you. But I will save you from death. This doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't die. He dies. What this means is he will not abandon him to the tomb that he will not see corruption. He says, trust in me. The promises that I've made still stand. I will not leave you in that tomb. Son, you will go right through the teeth of death and you will come out the other side victorious. A name above every other name, a dominion and a kingdom without end. Son, do not believe for one second that I will leave you dead, that I will leave you in that place. You will rise. And based on those promises, Jesus stands up with utter determination, he turns and he sets his face towards the cross. He says to these cowards who are now laying on the ground, rise, here comes the betrayer, let us go. Dear friends, do you see the love of God in Christ? Do you see why we can stand in this place with absolute assurance that he will not fail, that nothing will separate you from his love, that he can truly save you to the uttermost? You see what his love cost you? Do you see as the father looks at his son and says no, says no, so that he can look to you and he can say yes. In him, yes and amen. Because I said to my son, no. You see, as we approach this table today, the assurance that you can have that there's no need for timidity, there's no need for shying away, there's no need for bashfulness, you can come with absolute confidence that you will be received here, that you will be strengthened here, so that when your dark and desolate night comes, you may not fail because you have the same Jesus Christ interceding for you. The same Jesus Christ that has bought you with the price of his blood, that he will never let you go. Dear friends, do you see? Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that on that night you said no. We thank you that your son said not my will, but yours. We thank you, Father, that you did not leave him in that tomb. Because of the resurrection, we can have absolute assurance that all wrath has been forgiven, that we have been made right with you, and that we can come in these moments as sons and daughters, be truly strengthened in our faith. Father, I pray that you help to direct our hearts and our minds in that path in the moments to come. For we love you. 
We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.